0: The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Let's go to God's Word together this morning. Last week I told you that as a result of our study in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, that there were a number of issues that came out of that chapter that I wanted to spend some more time on. We spent 16 messages in that single chapter. And there are a number of issues that arose that we did not deal with entirely as we went through Romans 8. So last week we dealt with the question, what about those passages that seem to imply that believers can lose their salvation? Romans 8 clearly states that true believers can never lose their salvation and are never lost. And yet what about those passages that seem to imply that? So we spent our time last week looking at four of those main passages and showing that in every case none of them taught that a true believer was in, in the picture there. Each one of those dealt with false believers, and our conclusion was nowhere does the Scripture teach that a true believer can be lost. That was last week. This week I would like to deal with another issue that was raised in Romans chapter 8 that we also did not deal with because it really deserves a, a treatment of its own. It is a difficult topic. It is a controversial issue. It is a confusing issue It is a very nuanced issue, and it requires precision, and it it requires careful study and communication because it is a very difficult and controversial issue to talk about. It is a topic that is often avoided because of its difficulty to comprehend. As you can see from our notes, it is the issue of for whom did Christ die? Who did Christ die for? Did Christ die to pay for the sins of every single person who has ever lived, or was Christ's death for the sins of the elect? For whom did he die? Did he, the good shepherd, give his life for the sheep, or did he die for all people without exception? Did he die to make salvation a possibility for every person, or did he die to make salvation a reality for those whom he has chosen To put it another way, what is the extent of the atonement? What precisely did God intend through the death of his son, and will his design be fully accomplished in that? And maybe initially, as you hear this, your first question or thought is why is this an issue? Jesus died for everybody. He paid for the sins of the world. He paid for everyone's sins, didn't he? That's what I've been taught. That's what I believe. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. That's everything I've communicated in the gospel. Jesus died for you, and he died for your sins. Why is this even an issue? And I would say I understand your pain, but the issue is not that simple. And so I would like to explore this issue with you this morning and next Sunday, it's going to take us two Sundays to even scratch the surface of it. Let me just say this, if you are new here with us today, we normally just walk through a passage of Scripture verse by verse. That's normally how we do it. Sometimes in the summertime, we do a little mini-series, and this is that time now to deal with the topic. And so uh, we are glad that you are here if you are dropping in today. Uh, please understand that uh, this is not normally how we do it. And if you're here today, you're here for a very um, in-depth uh, conversation about a very important topic. Go to Romans chapter 8. I want to show you where specifically this issue raise, is raised in this eighth chapter of Romans, just so you can see where uh, Paul addressed it. As I said, I did not even mention it when we preached through Romans 8, because it really requires, as I said, a, a full treatment in and of itself. Romans 8 verse 32 is where we find this uh, issue raised. It says in verse 32 of Romans 8 that he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And it is that phrase right there in verse 32 that he delivered him over for us all that requires us to ask the question, Who is the us all? Who is in mind here? Who is Paul saying that Christ was delivered over for? Now, as a way of introduction, I want to highlight for you just how we got to this being an issue as it is today. If you've never heard of this issue, you need to understand that this is a perennial topic of discussion between Calvinists and Arminians. So let me just give you a little background here. Back in the early 1600s, there were a group of followers of a man called uh, James Arminius who uh, did not like the teaching of the Reformed churches in Holland. And so they became known as Arminians because they followed the teachings of Jacob Arminius. They particularly did not like the teaching of Unconditional Election nor did they like the teachings of the church on irresistible grace, that God sovereignly draws people to himself. They they rejected those ideas, and so they came together and they debated this, and they came out of their meeting with a summary statement of their disagreements with the Reformed Church in Holland. And those disagreements were put together in a five-point manifesto known as the Five Articles of Remonstrance. And here they are. Don't write them down, but I just want you to understand what they came apart saying was their disagreement with those churches. Here they are. Point number one man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it is put before him. Number two, man is never so completely controlled by God that he cannot reject the gospel. Number three, God's election of those who shall be saved is promoted by his foreseeing that they will of their own accord accord believe. In other words, God looks down the corridor of time, sees who believes him, he then in turn chooses them. That's what they were saying. Number four, Christ's death did not ensure the salvation of anyone. What it did, rather, was create the possibility of salvation For everyone. Point number five, it rests with the believers to keep themselves in a state of grace by keeping up their faith, and those who fail here will fall away and will be eternally lost. So they believed that true believers could lose their salvation. Those are the five points. And so when the Reformed churches, the leaders of those Reformed churches back in 1618 received this from Arminius and his followers, they met in a synod, Called the Synod of Dort, and they sought to formulate a response to these five points known as the Remonstrance. In return to that, they issued a a decree or a decision also containing five points, which are now popularly known as the Five Points of Calvinism, or more popularly known as TULIP, if you've heard it that way. So you need to understand that the five points of Calvinism did not arise from Calvin himself, nor did they arise as a statement by those who ha- followed Calvin's teachings. They, uh, uh, in and of themselves, they arose in response to those who disagreed with those teachings, and so the five points of Calvinism came as a result of that. They're known popularly as TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. It's an acronym that stands for five separate points. T, it stands for total depravity, the belief that everyone is depraved to the core, that they are dead in their sins and cannot make any move towards God unless he first does a work in their heart. That's T, total depravity. Then there is U, unconditional election, that God does not look down the corridor of time to see who chooses him, but rather he chooses before the foundation of the world who he will save simply because of his love and his grace and his mercy. L. Stands for limited atonement. This is the one we are dealing with in our service and our message today. And it has the idea that God has a specific plan in the death of Christ to actually save sinners, not to create salvation being possible for all people. He has within it a definitive plan to actually bring sinners to himself. By the way, I don't think the term limited is the best term. because it communicates that maybe somehow Christ's sacrifice was in some way limited or finite. I don't think that's the best term. I prefer definite atonement or particular redemption, but the reason they kept the L is because there's no such word as Tudip or Tupip. Tulip sounds a little better, so that's why they stuck with that. But I like the term definite atonement better than limited atonement. I stands for irresistible grace, the fact that God draws people by his regenerating grace to himself. P being the perseverance of the saints, that those who are truly saved will not and cannot be eternally lost because of Christ's grip on them. Those are the five points of Calvinism. You've heard people say, I'm a five-point Calvinist. By that, they would say and mean that they hold to all five of those points. Maybe you've heard some people say, I'm a four-point Calvinist. And if you heard someone say that, they by that mean that they don't like the limited atonement points. That is the most controversial of the five points, and so a four-point Calvinist would reject the L, the limited atonement position. Maybe you've heard some people say, I'm a 4.5 Calvinist. That means they're kind of halfway between uh, point uh, four and five, and whether they accept it in full or not, they kind of have both limited and unlimited position. I say all that, to help you understand that the issue of the atonement is the sticking point for many people when it comes to the doctrines of grace. And if anyone's going to balk at any of them, it's going to be that one. Now, I understand the controversy and I understand why this is such a difficult issue because there are in the Bible many passages that seem to imply and teach that Christ really did Die for everyone and pay for the sins of every single person. On the other hand, there are equally a number, great number of verses that teach that Christ died only for a specific, definite, defined, particular group of people. Here's what I want to do. I want to show you or walk through some of those verses with you. I don't want you to write them down. You're not going to be able to write them all down, but I want you just to appreciate the fact that the Scriptures have verses on both sides, and I want you to hear them and so you can understand the issue at stake here. So let me first of all give you a list of the passages that seem to speak of an unlimited atonement, that Christ died for everyone and literally paid for the sins of every single person. And they're in two groups. They're in the groups that use the word world, and they're in the group that uses the word all or every. So you know, let me just give you some of the verses that use the word world to demonstrate this. John one twenty nine: behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3.16, you know it well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. John 4, verse 42, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. 2 Corinthians five nineteen. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours only, but also for those who are in the whole world. 1 John 4, verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. There's many passages and many others that, that use that terminology that on a surface reading makes it seem like Christ has really truly accomplished redemption for every single individual person in the world. Added to that would be the passages that use the word all or every. Let me listen, list some of those for you. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Colossians 1, 20, through him to reconcile all things to himself. 1 Timothy 2, 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And Hebrews 2.9 says that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So here's a list of verses that, again, use the the, the kind of uh, inclusive terminology to describe the fact, apparently, that Christ really did and make whatever atonement was necessary for all men by his death. Now, here's the flip side. On the other hand, there are a number of verses that, Seem to indicate that Christ's death was only for a specifically defined, definite group of people known as the elect, which he then went to the cross and died for and actually paid for their sins. So again, let me give you some of these verses under separate categories. The first category is under the terms his people or the sheep. Matthew one twenty one: She will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. John ten fifteen. even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. Then there's other verses that seem to use the word and do use the word church. Be on guard, Acts 20, verse 28 says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see it. He died for the church. Who the church? Believers, only believers. Then there's the terminology that includes the words us or our. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.32, the verse that we just looked at a few moments ago. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Galatians 1.4, Christ gave himself for our sins. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. You get it? Let me give you a few more under separate categories. There are passages that use the word many as opposed to all. Matthew 20, verse 28 says, As the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not for all, but for many. Matthew 26, verse 28, This is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9, 28, Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Not all. And then under a separate category, there are a number of other verses that also imply the same thing. John 15, verse 13 says, Greater love has this, no one has this than the one that laid down his life for his friends. Titus 2 14 says he, he redeemed us from every lawless deed and purified for himself a people for his own possession. And Revelation 5, verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. doesn't say he redeemed every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Do, do you understand the, the issue now? There are verses on both sides. So how do we resolve this issue? How do we answer the question, for whom did Christ died did he die and actually pay for the sins of every single person who's ever lived or was there a specificity to the atonement I got that word right this time to the atonement that, re- that enabled him to actually purchase the salvation of those who were given him by the father before the foundation of the world why go through something like this let me give you some reasons one of the reasons I want to take you through this is because I don't want to just skip over the issues that are in the Bible. And let me just be honest with you. If I had the option of standing here before you today and picking any topic I could preach on, this wouldn't be it. But the joy of expository preaching is when you go text by text, verse by verse, issues come up that you have to deal with. And so that's one of the joys of working through the Bible that way. I also, another reason I want you to do this is I want you to have some answers and I want you to be able to wrestle with this question because I'm sure many times you're sitting around the table talking about what is the extent of the atonement, right? It happens all the time in your household, doesn't it? Seriously? Happens every night at our house. I'm kidding. But I want you to know. I want you to know the issue and I want you to be able to have at least some capacity to engage in that issue. But most importantly, I want you to understand this issue because I want you to understand a glorious facet of the gospel that perhaps you've never thought about before. So that's why I want to do that. And here's what I want to do. Um, first of all, you're going to have to stick with me. Uh, you're going to have to put your seatbelt on and you're going to have to think and stay engaged because, as I said, this is a difficult topic. So stay with me and, and work with me through this Uh, Today and next week, here's what I want to do. I want to give you my conclusion, right from the beginning. I want to give you what uh, I've wrestled with and studied. By the way, this is not a a message I threw just threw together this week. I've been thinking about this for years. Where am I going to land? How do I land on this very difficult issue? And so, what I want to do is, I want to give you my conclusion right up front, and then I want to spend the rest of today and all next Sunday explaining that conclusion to you. Here's my conclusion. There are some unlimited aspects to the atonement and some limited aspects of the atonement. How's that? Got it? Closing prayer? I'm not punting. I'm not trying to get out of it. But I believe a textually honest thing to do is to say that, because I believe that's what the Scriptures teach, that there are some unlimited aspects to the atonement, but there are also some different, more glorious aspects to the atonement that are limited. Charles Hodge, the great theologian, said it this way. He said, there is a sense in which Christ died for all, and there is a sense in which he died for the elect alone. Another way to say that is there is a sense in which Christ's death had an effect on unbelievers, but Jesus is not the Savior of all men equally, for he did not die for each and every individual alike. Is Christ the Savior of all men? Absolutely. Is he the Savior of unbelievers the same way that he's the Savior of believers? No way. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. And I, I want you to see this verse because I, I believe it is the best summary in the scripture of the position that I just articulated to you. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says this. For it is for this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Now watch this. Who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers? You see it? So can't blame me for taking this position because that's the position Paul took. He is the Savior of all men, especially, particularly of believers. What does this mean? The first thing we need to say is that Paul is clearly not teaching universalism here. He's not the Savior of all men in the sense that all people are going to be saved. That's not true. That's not biblical. Most people will reject Christ and spend an eternity in hell. So Paul is clearly not teaching universalism. But he is saying, in some sense, Jesus is the Savior of all men. There are some benefits that come to all people because of Christ's death on the cross, believer and unbeliever. At the same time, Paul is saying that Jesus is especially, Melista in the Greek, he is especially the savior of believers, which means there's something unique about his atonement for believers. There's something special, there's something different about Christ's atonement on the behalf of believers. So God is not necessarily the savior of both groups in the same way or to the same degree. Christ is Savior of all men in a general way, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But at the same time, Christ is the actual Savior, an actual Redeemer of those who are believers. So that's that's my understanding of how to deal biblically and appropriately with, with this issue. I believe the crux of the matter is the design and the intent of the atonement. And here's what I mean by that. The question we have to ask is, what was God's design and intent in sending Christ to be a Savior? Here's what I mean by that. Did God intend to send Christ to be a Savior who provides a potential salvation for all people? That's an unlimited position. Or was God's intent and design in the atonement to send Christ to actually redeem sinners. Those are not the same thing. Did God, in his plan, in his sovereign desire, choose to send Christ to make salvation a possibility or a potential reality for every single person who has actually lived? Or did God intend to send Christ to truly and effectually and successfully and triumphantly and definitely bring people to himself in salvation. Most Christians think that God sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for the sins of every single person, that it's available and open to everybody, and now God is just kind of leaving the decision in the lap of every individual. That's how most people think of salvation. But the thing you have to wrestle with is this. If God is sovereign, and God has a plan and design to accomplish his purposes, are those purposes ever frustrated? And then, in light of that, if Christ died for all people, and all people are not saved, then you have to deal with a plan that God's plans are frustrated. So my conclusion, my conviction, is that God's plans are never frustrated. Frustrated. So that he has a design and intention within the atonement to actually bring about salvation for his people that secures successfully and triumphantly their redemption. At the same time, I recognize that there are some universal aspects to the atonement for all, believe, or for all the world. Have I lost you? Stick with me. Let me give you some caveats as we begin this discussion a little bit more fully. I want to give you three caveats. You need to understand these because if you don't understand these, it's going to confuse the issue. Caveat number one is that the nature of the atonement is not at stake in this issue. We are not addressing in this discussion the nature of the atonement. Here's what I mean by that. Everyone who believes in Christ, whether Arminian or Calvinist, it doesn't matter. If you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all essentially agreed on the fact that Christ's death was a vicarious substitution. That he really did die as a substitute. He, he accomplished a penal substitution. He died in our place as... Uh, uh, he died in our place to accomplish our redemption. He died in the place of sinners. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. That's undisputed. So we are not addressing here the nature of the atonement. That's not on the table. We're agreed on that. We understand and agree and know that Christ really did give himself as a sacrifice for sin and gives to us his righteousness for all who believe. So caveat number one is we're not talking here about the nature of the atonement. Caveat number two, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is not at stake in this issue. We are not addressing whether or not Christ's death was sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. That, that's not even on the table either. That, that's, an understa- that's understood. We all know and believe that Christ's death was fully sufficient to pay for all people's sins. It was infinitely sufficient. There was nothing lacking in Christ's death that would require him to suffer more. So if, if, if God designed the atonement to save every single person in the world, his death would have been sufficient for that. And if Christ or God determined only to save Adam, that one person, Christ still would have had to suffer what he had to suffer to accomplish redemption for Adam. Let me read Phil Johnson. Here's what he says. In other words... If one more person had been elect, Christ would not have had to suffer more than he did. Not one more blow from the Roman scourge would have been necessary. Not one more thorn would have been added to his crown. He would not have needed to spend one more moment under God's wrath in order to atone for those additional souls, even if God had sovereignly chosen to save every single person who ever lived. Not only that... But if God had intended to redeem Adam alone and leave the rest of us to bear the curse and the punishment of our sin in hell, Christ would have not had to suffer any less than he did. Infinite value, by definition, cannot be diminished or added to in any respect. So we're not talking here about whether Christ's death was sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. It was. Let me give you a third caveat. Third caveat is both sides limit the atonement. In these discussions, you may um, hear people who say, well, you Calvinists, you you limit the atonement because you say Christ only died for the sins of the elect. And that's true that Christ, if you're a Calvinistic position, you're going to say that Christ only did pay for the actual sins of those who are elect. But at the same time, Uh, those in the Arminian camp must also admit that they limit the atonement. That's why I don't like the word limited because unless you're a universalist, you're going to limit the atonement. Even an Arminian is not going to say everyone's going to be saved. Even an Arminian will say that the only way you can be saved is if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and by doing that, they're limiting the atonement to those who believe. So every person in this issue limits the atonement in some fashion you're going to either limit it in its extent or you're going to limit it in its effectiveness but you will limit it somehow unless you're a universalist and believe everyone winds up in heaven somehow which none of us believe or you shouldn't believe that's all introduction let me give you two points point number one there are some universal aspects of the death of Christ. I believe that. I believe that the Bible teaches that there are some universal aspects to the death of Christ. Meaning, I believe that the death of Christ has some value to every person who has ever lived. Now, I'm going to stop short of saying that his death actually paid for their sins. I'll explain that in a moment. But I will say, biblically, that in the atonement, there are some universal benefits that accrue to all people, whether believer or unbeliever. Let me list them for you. Number one, common grace. One benefit that comes to all people, regardless of believer or unbeliever, is something known as common grace. And you know what that is. It is the goodness of God to all people who've ever lived, whether they're his children or not. Common grace is the conviction and the belief that God permits sinners to live and enjoy life under a temporary reprieve from judgment to enjoy many of the blessings that come with life in this world. Marriage, family, friends, children, a satisfying job, a vacation, a good book, the sunrise on a beautiful spring morning, the smell of flowers bacon. <laughs> These are evidences of common grace. And the Bible is clear about this. 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It's for everybody. Everybody can enjoy marriage if, if, if that's what God has ordained for them. Everyone can enjoy children if God allows that. Everyone can have, can have relationships. Everyone can eat food and enjoy it. I mean, just think about that. Aren't, aren't you still thankful that God doesn't make all your food taste like cardboard? That's his grace. Matthew 5, verse 45 says, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. The sun still rises and you get to see it and the rain still falls and you get to benefit from it. Acts chapter 14 Verse 17 says, he did not leave himself without witness in in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Here's Paul at the Areopagus preaching to pagans, and he says, you need to understand, God is the one who gives you rain, and God is the one who gives you food. So all people can enjoy those things. Sorry, that was actually Acts 14. Acts 17 is where he says to the Areopagus, he says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He's saying to the pagans there who he's preaching to, if you have life and you have breath in your lungs and if you have things you enjoy, they're because God has given them to you. That's common grace. Those come to us, to all people, through the atonement. And here's why. Because if God had chosen to judge Adam the moment he sinned and he could have all people would then be condemned until they die and then die under condemnation they would not have the benefit and the joy of enjoying those things so certainly common grace is purchased through the atonement number 2 there is a second universal blessing that comes through the atonement it is delayed judgment Delayed judgment. As I just said, God would have been completely just and right in condemning Adam the moment he sinned. He would have been completely just and right in condemning you and I the moment we sinned. But he didn't, and he chose to delay his judgment so that for a season, we can enjoy the gifts of God's goodness in this life before facing God's judgment. And so this is an act purchased for us through the atonement of Christ. Number three, the third universal blessing that comes to all who believe is the free offer of salvation. The free offer of salvation. Now, some, in dealing with this topic, will say to those of us who hold to a definite atonement, you cannot legitimately preach the gospel to every person If there's not a universal atonement, how can you go into the world and say Christ died for your sins, if Christ didn't die for the sins of every individual, you can't then legitimately preach a genuine gospel and a genuine offer of salvation and to that I would say yes you can. Because built within God's plan is to bring the gospel through people like you. Romans 10 says, how can they believe if they've not heard? And how will they hear if they don't have a preacher? We have the privilege and the joy of bringing the gospel to the world and preaching Christ to them. And God has built within that the fact that not all are going to be elect, but within that group that we preach to, some will be. And so our job is not to figure out who's elect. Our job is to go preach to everybody. So I can legitimately tell someone on the street when I meet them, not knowing where they are with the Lord at all, Christ died for all who will believe. And if you believe and you repent of your sins and you place your faith and trust in Christ, you'll be forgiven and you'll be saved. I can say that. And so can you. Why? Because of the offer is genuine and legitimate because of what Christ accomplished. So, Those are some universal aspects that come through the death of Christ to all people, believer and unbeliever. Point number two. But Christ's death actually only secured the salvation of the elect. So here's where I land I'm a five point Calvinist, essentially with an awareness of the fact that there are some universal aspects to the atonement. And so what I want to do in this point is I want to seek to demonstrate to you that Christ's atonement was not a potential offer of salvation to all people, but rather it was an actual accomplishment of redemption for his people. So what I mean by that is Christ didn't pay for the sins of Pharaoh when he died on the cross. See, How do you know that? Because Pharaoh was suffering in hell when Christ died on the cross. Jesus did not pay for the sins of Judas. Jesus did not pay for the sins of Pilate. Jesus did not pay for the sins of Herod. Jesus did not pay for the sins of Hitler. You know why? Because they're all suffering in hell for their sin. And here's the issue, if there is wrath left to pour out on the unbelieving sinner in hell, then the wrath that was satisfied on the cross by Christ was not sufficient. Do You see it? God does not demand the payment of sin's penalty first from Christ on the cross, and then again from the unbelieving sinner in hell. That's double jeopardy. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't punish Christ for the sins of the world and actually pay for them and then send someone to hell to make them pay for their sins again. That's not how God's, God works. So I believe then that we have to deal seriously with this issue of a definite atonement. And what I want to do is I want to give you a list of reasons why the scriptures hold to particular redemption, or a definite atonement, and we're only going to look at one today, so you'll have to come back uh, next week for for the rest of these. So I want to give you some biblical supports for a definite atonement, and I want you to go first of all to Romans eight. Point number one, or the first argument, is this: that Paul's argument in Romans eight assumes a definite atonement. Okay, this is the only one we're going to look at this morning. But I want you to go back to Romans chapter 8. This is where we started. And I want you to see that a careful reading and study of Romans chapter 8, the only thing you can conclude is a definite atonement. So go to verse 32. This is where we started. Romans 8:32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely? With him freely give us all things. So I want you to notice that there is a statement about the fact that Christ died. He was delivered over for some people. And he calls in verse 32, for us all. I want you to notice in verse 34, there's also a reference to the death of Christ. Christ Jesus is he who died. So clearly we have here a statement about the death of Christ, and we have within this context a description of of the audience or the people for whom he died. And verse 32 tells us, he died or was delivered over for us all. Here's the question. Who's the us all? So if we're going to figure out who the us is, we need to go back in the previous context to figure out who the us is. So go back to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us... Who is against us? Well, there it is again. But the problem is, it doesn't tell us who the us is. It just simply tells us that he's for us, but he doesn't tell us who that group of people is. So we have to keep going back to figure out who the us is. Go back to verses 29 and 30. And these verses tell us who the us is. Who's the us? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the us. Because if you read the next verse, if God's for us, those people just described who is against us. And then verse 32, he delivered him over for us all. Who's the us all? It's those described in verses 29 and 30. The very ones whom he foreknew, then predestined, then called, then justified, then glorified. So the context is very clear. The ones whom Christ was delivered over for are the ones whom he chose to have a relationship with in eternity past. Now, does the rest of the text support this? Let's let's move forward. We started in verse 32 and worked backward. Now go to verse 33 and let's find out if, if there's further explanation of this. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against who? God's elect. He's just defined it again. The ones whom Christ was delivered over for, us all, are called here in verse 33, God's elect. and Specifically, God is the one who justifies. Who does God justify? God justifies believers, not unbelievers. Keep reading. Go to verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who does Christ intercede for? He doesn't intercede for unbelievers. He intercedes for us, for believers. So Paul is consistent. He is clear in saying that the ones whom Christ was delivered over for are God's elect, and they are the ones whom he then exercises intercession for. Keep reading verse 35. Who then will separate us from the love of Christ? With tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Now verse 38, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creative thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who's he talking about here? He's not talking about unbelievers, because they will be separated from the love of Christ. They don't have that confidence. Only we do. Only believers have that confidence. And so if we trace Paul's argument right through Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 29 all the way to the end, the only conclusion you can come to is that Christ was delivered over for us, and the us are clearly the ones spoken of in verses 29 and 30. A specifically defined group of people whom God has set apart in eternity past to actually, not potentially, but to actually bring to salvation so that he can conform them to his image, justify them, and ultimately bring them to glory. Does that make sense? Some of you are look really confused. I believe that this is a passage that helps us make sense of the fact that Christ's work on the cross was not merely provisional, but was efficacious. It did not just make the grounds of salvation available to every single person. It actually accomplished the successful and triumphant redemption of the very people that God intended to save. And the next Sunday, we will then work through that to see if this conclusion can be supported through the rest of Scripture. Listen, don't take this as an excuse to not preach the gospel. You go preach the gospel. You go proclaim Christ. You go throw the seed of the gospel everywhere you can because some of them are the ones described in verses 29 and 30 of Romans 8. And our desire is to go find them And our desire is to go preach the gospel to them. And our desire is to go tell them about Christ. And our desire is to go make Christ so known to them that what happened to Joe Hamlin a few years ago happens to them. And they stand as trophies of God's grace. Go preach the gospel. And then, if you are a believer, revel in the fact that God didn't just send Christ to accomplish a potential salvation, hoping that you would take him up on his offer, revel in the fact that God sent Christ to actually save you. It's tremendous. Father, these are hard, hard truths. And Lord, I... I confess it's been difficult even to wrap my mind around all the nuances of this incredible reality, but Lord, we want to be faithful to your text. We don't want to just form an opinion and land on one side or the other and just say, that's what I am because that's what I want to be, Lord. We want want to be textually honest. And so we pray, Father, that what has been spoken this morning is faithful to your word. On the one hand, Father, let us rejoice. Rejoice abundantly in the work that Christ has actually accomplished for us. Let us celebrate the fact that we were once sinners triumphantly saved by Christ. But let us not become comfortable in that. Let us go proclaim that same gospel which has saved us to the world that they too may celebrate the work of Christ in their life. We thank you for your kindness and your grace in allowing us to wrestle with these difficult issues. We thank you for the word of God, which enables us to plumb its depths. May we continue to be faithful students of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.